Last week we started with a pretty simple but a pretty profound truth. A simple but profound truth that will revolutionize your life if you let it. And it's this, in Christ you already have infinitely more than you could possibly need. In Christ you already have infinitely more than you could possibly need. This week I want to add a little, a little tweak to it. I'm going to add a few more words to it there. Because this is where we're headed today. This is where the Christian life rubber meets the road. In Christ you already have infinitely more than you could possibly need. That is, if you actually need Him. We already have infinitely more than we could possibly need if we actually need Him. You see, most Christians don't really seem to need Christ because they're not engaged in a spiritual battle against sin. If your goal as a believer in Christ is to just get what you need, this side of heaven, to enjoy some earthly temporary security, then you don't really need Jesus a whole lot for that. You might have needed Him when you came down that sawdust trail, when you came down the aisle once or maybe twice or three times if you were in youth group for a span of ten years plus like me. And, and you might have needed Him in a couple of those times when you felt that, like, that sense of, Lord, I'm nothing without you. And, and inside your spirit, you were like, I need Jesus. But then life happens and, and, and you begin to sort of be able to control things, manipulate things, be in charge of your own world. You become sovereign. You build your own kingdom. Security, safety becomes the goal as life happens to us and we kind of push aside the need for the Spirit to be in us, to work through us for Jesus. We have infinitely more than we could possibly need if we actually need Him. I increasingly am convinced that most Christians are living by their own personal power. (laughs) They're living by their own power, so they don't need the Holy Spirit's power. I mean, because, listen, if the goal is some temporary, earthly safety and security, having enough for your 401k, if the goal is being able to retire and not have to work a whole lot, then good luck with that because you can make that happen by yourself. The Christian life is about battle against sin. That's the whole shooting match. We come to a, a series like this, and I say, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and His work in your lives. And, and, and in all of us, we think, oh, that's so great. I'm going to have steps one and two and three and four. And I'm going to have ten steps for how to make sure that I can do the, the Christian walk better, like the, the build a better widget Christian. Like, like that's what we're going to, to do to achieve the Holy Spirit's work in our life. But I'm here to tell you, steps one through ten are spiritual battle against sin is... 1 through 10. And that's how the Holy Spirit works increasingly in you to make God's character and nature manifest. Made known through you. Through the body. Individually and and corporately. So the people look at you and they look at the body and they say, you know what? (laughs) That crazy thing that you believe about God being real? I believe it. Because I see it. That's what the Holy Spirit wants for you. These, these piddly, earthly goals 
for your life? Like, I want to achieve this by 30, this by 40. Whatever those things were for you, those piddly, silly goals are infinitely nothing compared to the number one goal in your life if you choose to engage in spiritual battle, which is God's character and nature, His goodness being made known in your life. That's why you exist in the first place. I'm convinced that most professing Christians are on more of a sort of personal, spiritual scavenger hunt. And they just want to take Jesus out of their little like personal glove compartment when they need him, when they need him, which according to multiple parables taught by Jesus is a waste of God's resources. It is important that we understand that this amazing truth about having infinitely more than we can possibly need in Christ is true if you need him. If you need him. We have some hard and heavy words today about what a life that needs the Spirit's work looks like. We'll get there eventually. It's all the way at the end of the passage. And, and, and up to that point in verse 17, Paul builds this, this case, this argument for who we are and why we need the Holy Spirit's work. So let's go deeper into seeing this sort of spiritual battle that is involved in learning to live by the Spirit's power. Jump in with me at verse 12. Verse 12, we're going to recap here in just a second. This is kind of what Paul's doing. He's recapping, he's summarizing. He's saying, so then, brothers, verse 12, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Another word for that is sinful nature. Not to the sinful nature, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Just to recap where we've come from, uh, Paul has been making the argument that those who accept Christ's perfect and sinless life live an entirely new identity called being in Christ. Those two words, in Christ. That's Paul's way of saying what we have in this new identity as a follower of Christ. Justification is what he's talking about. And that's the biblical teaching, justification, that, that Jesus came and lived perfect flesh for our corrupt flesh. He lived perfectly for us as a stand-in. We talked last week that he did that and he also does that. So that what he did on the cross wasn't just a one-and-done, fly-by-night kind of thing. It's something that continues for us. So that your justification now, your declaration of standing in right relationship with God still works because Jesus is still perfect. (laughs) Which is a really cool truth. So your justification still stands and it's his perfect flesh for our corrupt flesh. We talked last week a little bit about this as well. Sanctification... Sanctification is that declaration of of righteousness for us being lived out, being realized in our life through the Spirit. And that's a process. It doesn't happen magically all at once. It happens better than magically through the Spirit in us over time. Sanctification is the from the inside out process of God's character and His nature increasing in us while sin decreases. Sanctification is God's very character and nature, we'll talk about this later on in the passage, increasing in us and sin decreasing. That's steps one through ten of the whole Christian life, doing battle so that that happens, so that that occurs. Look at verse 13 where he continues to explain this transformation a little bit further. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to deeds the death 
uh, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice what Paul is saying here. He's saying there are two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people exist. Those who are killing sin or those who are being killed by sin. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who are being killed by sin or those who are killing sin by the Spirit. People who are truly alive because of God's work in them, or those who think they're alive, but they're actually the self-deceived living dead. They're the walking dead. It's why Jesus has to say to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, unless one is regenerated, rebirthed by the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I used to think that seeing the kingdom of God was something that would happen at second coming, but I think Jesus is saying, unless you are born again, You cannot see, present tense, the kingdom of God that is available to you now in Christ. 1 Peter 1.23 also talks about this truth. You may want to look this up later. It's a cool passage. 1 Peter 1.23 says that we have to be born of incorruptible seed. What this is, is corruptible. And it ends in death if we live by it. We have to be born of incorruptible seed. 1 Timothy 5.6 says, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. It's that concept of being the walking dead. Uh, Romans 8, 8 that we talked about last week says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Two kinds of people, killing flesh or being killed by flesh. Killing sin by the Spirit or being killed by sin. Even in the Old Testament, we see that it's necessary to be reborn by the Spirit. In a really cool passage in Ezekiel 37, if you're not aware of this passage, you have to take this and and read this by yourself at home. It's a really cool passage. It sort of mirrors God breathing life into creation. And he's talking about the entire nation of Israel being corrupt because the Spirit of God is not with them, at least everyone but the remnant. In Ezekiel 37, 5 to 6, this is... God speaking to Ezekiel, he says, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, these dead and dry bones that, that signified the Israel, Israelites being the walking dead. He says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. That breath is symbolized uh, there for the Spirit. And you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you. And I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And he says this in verse 14. I will put my spirit within you and you will live. The Bible says two kinds of people in the world. Those who are alive because they're killing sin by the spirit and those who are the walking dead and don't even know that their sin is killing them. And being deceived is being unaware that that's how the world works. Being deceived is being unaware that that's the battle for your soul. There's a really cool way of saying this that uh, I came across that summarizes verse 13. If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. It's just a cool way to encapsulate it. There is a living that is death. There is a living that is death, and there is a putting to death that is life. Romans 8, 13. There's a living that is death, and there is a putting to death that is life. And those who are living, Paul goes on to say, we're not going to focus on those who are dead. He's going to say those who are living and tell us about who we are. Verse 14, those who are living by the Spirit, it says, verse 14, are God's children. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
this Spirit of God generates in us a new obedience that confirms that we are in God's family. What the Spirit does is it generates in us a new obedience that confirms that we are in God's family. And you may say, wait, I don't see anything about obedience there. But look again, it says it right there because obedience is what happens when you're led by the Spirit. So if you want to know if you're a son or daughter of God, do you want to know if you're in the family of God, then ask yourself this question. Ask yourself this question. Do I increasingly want to do the good things that come from God's heart? Simply that. Do I increasingly want to do the good things that come from God's character and nature, His perfection that comes to us, bought for us by Christ, and made known through us in the Spirit? That's how you know. And that's why, that's why you can have confidence. Verse 15, you did not receive, this is a cool, cool thing here in verses 15 and following, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to the sinful nature, to the flesh, to fall back into the fear. And by the way, that's what you're doing when you're falling back into fear. You're acting like a slave that you were. You're acting like the slave that you were. But that's not who you are, Paul says. He says, but you... But in contrast, but you have received the spirit of God. I'm sorry, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. It means this new relationship means you can call him your father. So the first blank in your outline today is that present transformation is a process by which we are adopted if indeed you blank. This is what present transformation looks like according to this passage. There are other ways to describe it, other metaphors, other pictures, but he talks about being a part of the family. He started off by saying brothers. He talks about how we are children, sons, heirs. We call him father. He's talking about being adopted into the family of God, and that's what present transformation looks like. Next week we'll look at future transformation. This week is just present transformation. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've given your heart to him and you trust him to save you, then you are an adopted son or daughter. Your new identity was bought for you as son or daughter by adoption. Galatians 4, which is a great passage, parallels sort of Romans 8. Galatians 4, 4 to 5 tells us that this is why Jesus came. Your adoption is why Jesus came in the first place. It says, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we take on the new name of Christ as our own, because this new name means that we are no longer helpless in our sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin, helpless and lost like we once were. Many of you know that we're uh, working to adopt uh, this beautiful little baby girl. Um, Sixteen months ago, we were privileged to answer the call to become her foster family when she was uh, eight days old. And, of course, it doesn't take long to get to that place where you, you can't even imagine life without this person as a part of your family. Um, now, I want to point out something. I, I can't predict what her life might have been like. I, I mean, I can't do that, <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and do that. I can't predict what it would have been like. But I have often thought about what maybe could have happened for her if her two strung out on drugs for many years parents were still charged with her care and nurture. Now, now I don't know that this is the case, but, but, I, but I have thought oftentimes about what her life would have been like perhaps as her uh, high on meth parents might have been in the other room for, for literally days at a time while this little 
helpless girl is screaming and crying and yelling for food. No one comes and scoops her up and takes... I I imagine even something like her sitting in uh, diapers full of urine and feces for hours and hours on end. No one coming to help take care of her. No one coming to scoop her up and to nurture this precious little girl. Which may sound like a bit of an extreme picture, but it's exactly what it's like to be enslaved in sin, to be an orphan without a mom or a dad, without Abba Father who accounts for our being helplessly lost in sin by His own Son Jesus coming for us. To be an orphan is to have no hope and no God in the world, no mommy, no daddy, no hope, no one to... Change her and feed her and love on her. Now that may sound a bit like an extreme picture. And of course her biological parents may have been able to, to nurture her. I, I don't know. But I know that that kind of thing, that kind of abuse and that kind of neglect happens all the time. All the time. And it's a picture for us of what it's like without Christ as our stand Without Christ as our stand-in, we are, every single one of us, orphans. No home, no parents, no hope. Without Christ as our stand-in, we have reason to fear. We have reason to fear. Which is why he says, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Listen to what Paul is saying here. He's saying if God has paid with His perfect flesh to be a stand-in for our corrupt flesh, you are no longer a slave to the sin that kills and that breeds living in fear. But you are now an adopted child who can cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. Which means we are adopted and brought into a family. Where instead of trauma, there is safety. Instead of fear, there is courage. The truth of the matter for us, Paul says, is that God has bought you at an infinite price as His own so you can have assurance in the place of fear, courage in the place of cowardice. And that will be important to live this spiritual battle against sin. It'll be important to know that that you stand with all of the riches of heaven in your stead as you fight the spiritual war against sin. That's where we're headed. We'll keep going there. Let's keep going. Verses 16 and 17. If you ask the question, how do I know? How do I know? I don't always feel like I know. Verses 16 and 17. It says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. In two kinds of ways. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now press pause there at 17a. Paul is using throughout this passage words like uh, sons, children, heirs, fellow heirs, adoption, and father to sort of paint a picture of what it's like to be a part of God's family. Now that by itself is great news. That by itself is great. But also notice it says that the Spirit bears with our spirit, confirms with us that we are adopted children, And then notice verse 17, this is cool. It says that we are heirs 
of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is a statement that we are heirs of God that is the heart of sanctification. The heart of becoming increasingly holy. Being part of God's family means not only do we receive God's promises, His blessings, we are meant to receive the very character and nature, the essential, essential stuff that makes God good, perfect, and holy through Jesus and the Spirit in us. We are heirs of God's very character and nature. Not fully, not ultimately, not, not in glorification yet, but we are heirs of the very character and nature of God through Christ and the work in us through the Spirit. That is mind-blowing stuff. That though we were orphaned, lost, helpless, in a place we'd chosen in our sin, God comes, scoops us up and says, I will give you my character and nature to remake you. That's precious stuff. Being an heir of God is increasing godliness through Jesus, which is why the second part about being fellow heirs with Christ is there. So follow this because this is radical stuff. Increasing in holiness isn't the build a better widget approach. (laughs) The you do in the life of a Christian better by yourself approach is an exercise in failure. Increasing in godliness cannot be the build a better widget approach. (laughs) That's mostly an exercise in learning one's own depravity, honestly. (laughs) Increasing in holiness means that we have inherited God's actual character and nature, bought for us by the Son and made known to us through the Holy Spirit. So the, the whole Trinity is involved in this. And it's a good thing, it's a good thing that we are receiving in some sense God's character and nature because... Verse 17, here's the rub. It says we are children of God provided we suffer with Him. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. At this point, it's easy to say, okay, I I was with you, Paul. I liked all that daddy stuff. Until you got to this part right here where it says, provided we suffer with Him. I mean, I like the, the being part of God's family thing. I like inheriting all the riches of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, but but this, this suffering part, I, I'm not a big fan of that personally, God. So if you could just kind of leave it at that point beforehand where I don't really have to like follow you that much to the cross, then uh, it'd work a little better for me that way. Sounds ridiculous to say, but isn't that exactly how we often live? You know what, Jesus? I'm going to just kind of put you in my spiritual glove compartment until I've decided that I need you. Which is to functionally take one's self out of the spiritual battle that is being waged against the evil one's work in your life, against sin. That's why the next blank in your study notes there is you are adopted if indeed you suffer. You are adopted if indeed you suffer. That's the gist of this whole section that Paul's been building up to. It's like everything sounds great, and then he says, provided, (laughs) provided you suffer with him. 
This is a hard truth, and I wrestled with this quite a bit this week, uh, but I don't think you can interpret this verse with integrity and explain away the suffering as optional. Paul is saying here that suffering is conditional with being with God in glory. Look at it again. It says, we are children of God provided, some versions say, if indeed, that's a good translation as well, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We'll get to the glorified part next week. But the present transformation is suffering with him. The grammarians call that phrase provided or, or if indeed. They call that a, an adverbial conditional conjunction, which means it helps connect two statements with a condition in the middle. In other words, A has to happen if B is going to happen. And, and there's not a, any way around this. You, you can't explain this away from the text. A has to happen if B is going to happen. Now, uh, let me just say a couple things. This doesn't mean that we try to create suffering like the self-flagellatory uh, monastics who, who beat themselves. Uh, and this isn't like a masochism. Uh, God's not saying that you have to go out and seek, seek to make suffering happen. That would be opposite of the heart of God. But it might mean following Jesus to glory is a road that always goes through the cross. He's saying that Christ-like suffering is a sign of legitimacy. Do you want to know if you're in the right battle, if you are a child of God, if you are adopted, if you've taken what was justification declared righteous for you and it's begun to make it happen through the Spirit in you, if you want to know if you're legitimate, Christ-like suffering is a sign of legitimacy. It's a sign of being worthy of receiving the full inheritance and glory because the life of Christ is reproduced in His children. The life of Christ is reproduced in his children. Participation in his glory can only come through participation in his suffering. Listen, if Jesus, perfect, sinless God of the universe, gets to glory through suffering, what on earth makes us think that the Christian life is going to be anything easy? other than the evil one who's deceiving us. <laughs> Friends, the road to glory goes through the cross. That's why you need the Spirit of God. If you don't need the Spirit of God, you're on the wrong road. You're fighting the wrong battle. You're achieving for yourself things that you don't need the Spirit of God to help you with. The road to following Christ is hard and it's full of suffering. And we get the opposite, not from the Bible, not from Jesus, not from Paul. <laughs> we get it from believing the lies of the evil one. Of living our lives for idols. Matthew 5, 11-12 says, this is Jesus talking, Blessed are you 
when others revalue you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John fifteen eighteen to 20 says, If the world hates you, this is Jesus preparing his disciples to go out into the world. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 3.10, a super great verse we should all memorize. In the NIV, it says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. James 1.5 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 2 Corinthians 4.16-7 So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul himself said in a bunch of places, including this, 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Who has deceived you into believing the lie that following Christ would be anything other than a battle against sin? Not Jesus. Not Paul. Not James. Not Peter. Not the Bible. Where did you believe that lie? Listen closely, friend. The work of the Spirit in you is to equip you for spiritual warfare against sin. The work of the Spirit in you is to equip you to do spiritual battle against sin. And if that doesn't mark your life with Jesus then you're not following him to the cross. You're living a life that doesn't even need his work in you. There will be a point at which God says, go your way. Jesus is not looking Jesus is not looking for spiritual wimps. (laughs) He can't use that. He won't use that. He's looking for warriors who are ready to do battle against the sin in one's life by the Spirit. He is looking for warriors with spiritual armor who will follow him into the battle for souls. That's why he has to make known his goodness and glory through you so that you can do battle A, against sin, and B, for the soul of somebody else. That's why you were created. 
God has bigger purposes in mind for you than working for 40 years to enjoy an earthly temporary security and retirement. Paul is saying, wake up to the war that God has planned for you. Friends, being used by God to participate in redeeming the lost is the highest calling in life. And make no mistake about what that means. It means following Jesus Christ into spiritual warfare. There's a a famous, probably the most recent famous epic poem by G.K. Chesterton. It's called The Ballad of the White Horse. And it's about a fictional King Alfred who leads the Christian kingdom uh, against the, the heathen kingdom. And he says this, listen to these great words, describes the nature of being involved in, in real battle. It says, And the heart of the locked battle is the happiest place for men. When shrieking souls as shafts go by and men have died and all may die, though this word be a mystery, death is most distant then. When spiritual shrapnel is flying all around you, take heart, be of good courage, Step into the fray like a man because God has you in the battle for souls at that point. And that is living. Everything else is fakery. Everything else is temporary earthly fakery that will die with everything else at judgment that isn't reborn by the Spirit. So when people talk falsely about you, but you've lived with integrity, then you can count it all joy and you know you're in the battle. When your body on the outside is decaying and dying, where there's cancer that's eating your body away, but at the same time your spirit is strong in the hope that eternity rests with Jesus. Count it all joy. When abuse and pain tempt you to give up, but you have a hope in Christ alone, count it all joy. Because because then you're in the real battle. Then you know that you are in the heart of the battle. The happiest place where death is most distant. Where the life of God is what's animating you through the Spirit. Then you need Jesus. Then you need Jesus and His work in you through the Spirit. Friends, what God is doing is He's recreating you through the Spirit by taking you down the same road Jesus walked. And when you, when you walk a road like that, and, and, and you have to have a dependency upon God to work in you through the Spirit, and there's a, an intimacy and a closeness and a fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings, then you know, then you know you're in the real spiritual battle against sin. 
You have joined with God's Spirit so that He can do something we cannot by ourselves. And when that, when that truth of walking the same road as Jesus sinks into your soul, there is no response other than to say, Lord, I was orphaned and you loved me as your own. And I want wholeheartedly to do nothing but live the good things from your character and nature as a result. And do battle against the things that left me orphaned. When you're in that battle, when you have to depend on the Spirit, then you know that you are an adopted son or daughter. Let's pray.